you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to Jonah. It's that little book that if you don't know where it is, you're going to go right by it. It's right between Obadiah and Micah. Uh, or you could just look in the table of contents. Uh, don't worry, we all do it. So, Jonah. Jonah is one of those interesting books. If you're of my generation, you grew up watching Veggie Tales and learning about yeah, uh, learning about a fish getting slapped, and uh, oh no no not the fish getting slapped, Larry getting slapped with the fish. Yes, it's a good. I I, I really enjoy Jonah. Uh, we're going to be taking some time over the next little while, walking through some of the minor prophets, and just seeing who God is and and what that means for us. I know I'm not starting at the beginning of the Minor Prophets, because I was just going to do a short series in the Minor Prophets, and then I planned Jonah, and they're like, hey, let's just do them all. Uh, so we'll go back and do the other ones at some point. But uh, we're in Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 6, and if you have your Bibles ready, follow along with me. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Arimathea saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, your sleeper? Arise, call on to your God. Perhaps the God, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I just uh, thank you for the chance we have to just remember and be reminded of your greatness this morning. Lord, you are great and you are awesome. And as we continue to worship you, Lord, as we open your word and worship you through how you have revealed yourself to us, Lord, I pray that I do just want to preach so that you are glorified. I want to speak of you and I want to praise you. And Lord, there's no good thing that can make this turn out well without you. So Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed, with the necessary power and appropriate affection. God, I pray that you would use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. Uh, There's something about a good satire. I enjoy a good satire. I don't know what it is about it. It's probably because I'm incredibly sarcastic sometimes, but I enjoy them. Some people say, oh, that's a sin. I'm like, no, it's not. It's awesome. Um, It's fantastic. You know, there's, 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 uh, there's, uh, publications online like The Onion, which is a secular publication which is oozes satire, uh, which is great. And the funniest thing is when people actually take those articles that are s- satire and they post them online as truth. Um, 
and you click on the link and you go, no, that's, they're joking. Um, that's not reality. There's a Christian version called the Babylon Bee, uh, which I, I used to subscribe. It's not as good as it used to be. Um, <laughs> so hopefully I don't get in trouble for that one. Um, but their satire is good. You know, Stephen Colbert is another option that's on TV that uses a, or used to use a lot of satire. Satire uses humor and irony, exaggeration or ridicule to expose and criticize people's really stupidity and vices. Right? We look at it and, and one of the things that makes satire so good is that there's truth in it. But unlike a lot of satire, where like what I was saying is, is not true, when we look at Jonah, Jonah is a historical book. It is an historical person. Some people have a hard time struggling with it because here's a guy who gets fall, swallowed by a, sh- uh, a fish for three days and then he gets like vomited up on the, ocean, on, the, on, the, on the shore and we're going, oh, that can't be true. It is. Jonah is a real person. He, he's talked about in 2 Kings. He's actually prophesied in favor of Israel in the, in the time of Jeroboam II. Jesus in Matthew treats him as a historical figure. So he is a historical figure. This is a real story. But nonetheless, there's satire in it. And that's why every time I watch it or read it, I kind of snicker sometimes. I kind of laugh to myself. Because Jonah, man, Jonah... But the thing that makes, as I said, satire so good is that it often hits a chord to yourself. Right? You're laughing, and then you start thinking about it a little bit more. And you go, wait, that's me. And when we read Jonah, it's not about a guy who is ridiculous. He is ridiculous. But it's more about you and me and our relationship with God. So, Jonah 1, verses 1 to 6 Sinclair Ferguson calls it, it is, a real, it is really a book about how one man came through painful experience to discover the true character of the God whom he had already served in earlier years of his life. He was to find the doctrine about God with which he had long been familiar come alive in his experience. And you see that. He comes face to face with the reality of who God is in this story. And because this story talks about how a fish, we struggle with it. But like I said, he is not a myth. The details in this story are, are too real. Jesus, again, treats him as a historical figure in Matthew 12. And he's quoted as prophesying in Second Kings as well. So like any good story, though, like any good satire, at some point it hits hard because the points come out about things that are in our own lives. So in verses 1 to 3, we're hit with reality. It kind of just, there's no bush, there's no painting a picture of what's going on. The story gets right into it. The narrator gets right into it. He says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Maratea. So rebellion leads to a complete rejection of God, and we'll see this in these first three verses. See, what's happening with Jonah here? The word of the Lord has come to Jonah. What an amazing thing. There he is, just minding his own business, enjoying life. And then suddenly the word of the Lord comes to him. What an, what an awesome privilege that that would be. The privilege, the divine privilege, purpose of having this opportunity 
to speak to, to men so to bring him into voluntary and intelligent participation in, in God's plan. But what, does, does, God do, does, uh, does Jonah continue on with this? Does he take God's word and do what he is told? No, because we see later on, he says, so God in verse 2 says, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call, and call out against it, for their evil has come up to me. Here's this word, go to Nineveh, get them to repent, tell them about how they are, they're they're just so evil. We need to understand the context, context is important, historical context is important. Because Nineveh is like the Washington, it's a superpower, it's a world power, it's a mean world power, and they go in and they kill everybody. They're known for their harshness and their, and their extremeness. And, and when they take over a city, uh, you pray that you were already dead before they come in. They weren't nice. They were awful people. But in historical context, we understand back in 2 Kings, Jonah it goes to Israel and Jonah prophesies something. Hey, you know what's going to happen? Your borders are going to be restored. You know what happens? Israel's borders are restored. And did Israel do absolutely anything to, to, to win favor with God, to get that, 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 that great prophecy? No, nothing. Actually, they continued in their sinfulness. Yet God is showing grace and mercy to this nation that has rebelled against them. But what is happening in that time frame is Assyria has been getting to withdraw from its borders because they themselves were going through some major turmoil. There were natural events. There were things going on within the country and they couldn't hold those borders anymore. So you can see even in the context, God has preparing the hearts of these Ninevites saying, get ready. So God comes and he says to, to Jonah, get up. Go to this city and preach to them. Go to this great city. It was a massive city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But verse 3, this is where the satire comes in. This is where he gets humorous. What does Jonah say, do? He gets up and he goes to Nineveh. No, that's not what he does. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but we think it's in Spain. And keep notes of what the narrator is saying here. From the presence of the Lord. He says that a couple, three times in this passage. And he went down to Joba, which is even further. Like he's purposely going down and he found a ship going to Tarshish. Which is again the complete opposite direction of where he's been called to go. Here's a man who has had the privilege of being in the presence of God and he's running away from the presence of God. Do you see the irony that is just oozing out of this text? But we learn this amazing thing about who God is. God has a redemptive concern for the world. And Jonah is struggles with God's grace as it is shown throughout every part of this book. He is struggling with it because he knows God's grace. Second Kings again. And then he runs away. See, Jonah was in a great position to see God's grace and his mercy. Back in Second Kings 14, we see God showing grace to Israel. And Jonah has this amazing position to see God's grace and mercy. 
But he doesn't want Nineveh to know about it. So he gets up and he runs away. See, God calls him to arise, to go to Nineveh. So Jonah rose and he flees to Tarshish. Nineveh is in the east, Tarshish is in the west. He is heading in the complete opposite direction. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what the narrator is trying to highlight in the movement away from the Lord? God calls Jonah to do something, and Jonah does the opposite. Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. This is the complete opposite of what a prophet is supposed to do. A prophet's job is to stand in the presence of the Lord and to proclaim the word of God to the people. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do any of that. Forget that. He has one job. One job. You ever, uh, for a while there, I was following on Twitter the one job hashtag, or, uh, account, you know, you had one job. You know, it's amazing the things that people do. They only have one job, you know, like clean the toilet or something, and it's like the toilet's broken, right? Like all you had to do was wipe it down. Jonah, you had one job, and he's, he's rebelling against it. It's okay, God. It's okay, God, if you, if you ask me to do what you ask me to do, as long as I get to stay comfortable, right? We're here right where I am. See, in 1 Kings 17, verse 1, it paints this picture of a prophet standing in the presence of the Lord, the heavenly king, and receiving a mess- messages from him to pass on to others. See, Jonah isn't just running away from the geographical location. He's running away from the responsibilities as a messenger of the heavenly king. God is going to pour out his grace and his mercy on a people. And we know through the word of God that people need to hear the word of God in order to repent. So God sends Jonah to do that exact same thing. And Jonah runs away. He no longer wants to be the Lord's prophet. We don't know why Jonah is doing this until verse, later on in chapter 4, verse 2. But what the writer is really trying to get us to see is the depth of Jonah's disobedience. And this is the thing with his disobedience. If you look at the text, he says this. So he paid the fare and went down into it. Do you notice that his rebellion was completely legal? He didn't steal at all. He didn't steal at all. He paid for it. So not everything that is legal is moral. God's standard is a lot different. God told Jonah to go and tell the nations of the grace that God uh, has for them, and he runs away from it. We look at this story, and we often shake our heads, but when we slow down and take a look at this and and think about things that Jesus himself comes along and tells us, I'm quickly reminded of another commandment that's very similar. It's a great commission, is it not? Go. 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 And baptize. If I keep doing that, if I keep rebelling against what God has commanded me, unchecked, I could soon find myself moving away from the presence of God. 
for to reject the commands of the Lord, no matter how tough the application of the command seems to be, is to reject God's will and reject the Lord himself. I really struggled with this passage, more than I ever have. I usually laugh at this stuff. But as I'm studying it, as I'm reading it, as I'm reflecting upon it, I'm hit with a load of bricks. Oh, Jonah, you're, 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 you're so stupid. You're so foolish. You're just running away. He's been given the word of the Lord to go and proclaim it to someone else. God calls people to his service. And here Jonah is called to preach to a foreign city. Second, God cares enough about sinners to send a word of hope, love, and grace. Finally implied here and told later in the story, no one can run from God. No one. You know, we see this in Psalm 139. You hem me in, it says. Behind and before, you have laid your hand upon me. And certainly, if our misdeeds are never hidden from him, from God, so also our need for him is also very evident. We see that in Isaiah 40, verse 27. See, Jonah is really struggling with God's grace. How dare you, God, save them? Because he knows he will. But how dare you? Let me ask you this. Who's that person that you really, really, really struggle with? I mean, that coworker on the cubicle beside you or on the line across from you. That neighbor who just... We've all had those neighbors. How about your brother or sister in the Lord who's sitting beside you? Who is that person that you really struggle with? And how are you responding to them? Are you withholding the good news of Jesus Christ from them? Because that's exactly what Jonah was doing. Better yet, are you withholding the good news of Jesus Christ from someone so that you can take time to get to know them? You know, there's a truth that many of God's people have struggled to accept. We are all too happy for God's mercy to be extended to us, but not to others. We've read, we've, we've, we read historical figures all the time. We read the newspapers all the time about people who we consciously and even verbally say they are too far from God's grace. There is no one too far from God's grace. You were too far from God's grace. That's the beauty of the gospel. We were all sinners. We were all dead in our sins and our trespasses. We were all objects of God's wrath. But Christ Jesus died for us. This isn't a story about a man being swallowed by a fish. This is an account of who God is, who is rich in grace and mercy, has broken, uh, who, who uses a broken man to share the word of hope, love, and grace to a nation that desperately needed it. So here's the point. Our disobedience to God's call shows a comfortable indifference in spite of the threat of God's wrath against all rebels. Not too long ago, I was reading some of, some of the Puritans, and, and it, it's confronting, isn't it? If I truly have an understanding of, of God's holiness, 
and therefore also hell, that should spur me on to go tell other people, right? There's good news for you. There's hope. You know that brokenness you feel inside? You know how you've been estranged from God? There's hope. There's healing. And it's through Jesus Christ. So Jonah flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord so that he would not share the grace of God to those he hated. But we also see God's sovereignty in here because we invite God's wrath when we rebel. We are forced to switch our attention to God. He sees us in verse 4, but the Lord. So here's Jonah. He's, he's on his way. I'm going to go sleep in the, sh- in the boat. I'm good to go. I'm out of here. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. That is a major storm. See, the plans of a sovereign God are not just thrown to the side by some sort of stubborn will of a puny prophet. God's going to show some major strength here. And Jonah was going to learn a hard lesson that it was not easy to push aside God's commission. See, one commentary put it this way, and this is what really hit me hard this week. He says this, If ever we think the Lord simply glosses over rebellion to his word, we are mistaken. If we think it is a light matter to ignore the example of the believer sharing the gospel throughout the book of Acts, we are fooling ourselves. Let God serve notice to us all. He is prepared to break up this ship, drown Jonah, and let all of the idol-worshipping sailors perish, and all in a response to Jonah's rebellious actions. Do you see that? The Lord will make a storm to wreak havoc and wreck our plans when we readily dismiss obedience to his commands. That's what we see. So unlike a disobedient prophet, all of nature was used for the purpose of God. And what was his purpose? To send this broken man to go and share the good news of God and through the proclaiming of his word to save these people. We learn a lot about who God is here. Something I don't understand is when we come along and we use terminology like we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament or oh, it's a different aspect of God that we see in the Old Testament than we do in the New Testament. That's, a, that's dumb. I almost said something I shouldn't. Yeah. God, the same God we see here is the same God we see in the New Testament. He's a God full of grace and mercy who's pouring out his love to a broken people using a broken man who's doing everything he can to run away from his presence. Do you see his grace being poured out on here? He's undeserving. Jonah's undeserving. Nineveh's undeserving. Yet here God is orchestrating everything to call these people to himself. See, Jonah is exhibiting disobedience. His disobedience is is showing that he has this comfortable indifference in spite of the threat of God's wrath against all rebels. This also in verse 6, when we move on, verses 5b on to verse 6, it sees that our rebellion denies sinners the hope of God. 
See, here's Jonah. He's gone down into the inner part of the ship. He is so comfortable with what he's done that he's sleeping in the ship. In fact, it's such a deep sleep that the storm hasn't woken him up. I don't know how he's lying there. I don't know if he strapped himself in or something, but he is comfortable. And he is comfortable with his decision. He would much rather see these people go to hell than obey God. He's fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Like, what are you doing? We're dying here. Call to your God. The sailors were working feverishly and praying heartily for their lives, but the cause of the trouble was below deck, fast asleep. Not knowing Jonah's connection to the trouble, the captain, he comes down, he says, wake up. Pray. There's an extreme irony here again. Here a heathen sea captain. We know that he doesn't believe in God. He's praying out to their God, the text says. He's not praying out to Yahweh. He's not, create, he's not praying out to the God who created all things. He's create, praying out to his God. He's a heathen sea captain. And he pleads with the Hebrew prophet to pray to his God. It is sobering to see one who might be termed an unbeliever pleading for the spiritual action on the part of the believer, is it not? The unbeliever saw the gravity of the situation while the prophet slept. It is a sad commentary when those who are committed to the truth of God's word have to be probed by the lost world into spiritual activity. Satire is great, isn't it? See, Jonah is denying perishing men an opportunity for the hope of the Lord's salvation. He feels he can't tell them of the Lord's mercy because he doesn't want to tell Nineveh of the Lord's mercy. All around him are people who want a solution to escape death, but Jonah is trying to flee from the presence of the solution. The solution. God himself. You know, I, I have family all over me. I have aunts, uncles. I have a uh, closer family. Who I, I'm convinced they're not. They're not safe. They don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They don't know the hope. Yet I come up with all slew of excuses of why I can't tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. See, our disobedience to God's call shows a comfortable indifference in spite of the threat of God's wrath against all rebels. So what? Friend, we should obey God. If you are a Christian and you are trying to run away from God in some area of your life, realize that you will never succeed. It's impossible. You can't ever outrun God. Like, if you could unrun, unrun God, he wouldn't be God. Right? Like, that's a... I know it makes... It's logic. But we do it. I do it. Don't try. It is a waste of your time, and it will only bring sorrow. Do you really think he won't know about you? 
or notice what happened or won't come looking for you as he did with Adam in the garden as Adam and Eve rebelled against him and sins or Jonah or so many other people that we see in the Bible do you really think you can avoid giving an account to him? You can't. I can't. You can't. So what do you do with all of this? I got four things. Go on the offensive on Monday morning. When you arrive at work or where at the park with your kids or wherever you may be at school, someone's going to say to you, because it happens all the time, someone's going to say to you or ask you, so how was your weekend? Because we're all over small talk, right? That's what we do. How was your weekend? Make a reply to them that opens up an opportunity to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. You could say something like this. You could change it a little bit, but you could say something like this. I heard a great sermon on Sunday. See, that was a joke. You're supposed to laugh. It explained about embracing Jesus' death and his resurrection and how you can be transformed and that this isn't just a job or something like that. You can share a 30-second synopsis of the main point of the sermon. I'm going to tell you that again, so, so you know. And when you're finished, you could say something like this. I would love to share more from the message with you later. You want to do lunch? Look for the opportunity and similar ones this week. I was reading something not too long ago. It's that we've got to stop praying for opportunities. God has given them to us already. What we need to be praying for is boldness. Second one is this. First one, go on the offensive. Second one, be clear on the gospel and its significance. Jonah did not seem to grasp the significance of his calling to the Ninevites. His message was the only hope for these idol worshippers in the storm of God's judgment. Similarly, as sinners before the holy God, people are deserving of his deepest and eternal wrath. Our message about Christ's substitutionary work as God's propitiation for sin and as the one who alone defeats death is the only message of hope for people who are lost. Understand what the gospel is and how important it is for your life. Pray. Just pray. You know, we're still working on getting to know our neighbors, so I can't really use that situation. I've been convicted of this too, by the way. We've been here for seven months, and I don't necessarily know their names. Although, I'm really bad with names. So, there's another excuse. We have a list. I have a list. I have, yes, I have an app for helping me pray. Yes. It's called Permate. Great app. And, and, and I have in there the people who I know who are lost. And I'm praying for them. But you know what happens when I'm praying for them? I'm thinking about them too. I'm being purposeful. I'm going to seek to have a barbecue this summer. You can hold me accountable to this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have my neighbors over. I got... You know, you got like, for me, we live in a house, so you got one, two, three, four, five, and around you. I'm going to bring them over. We're going to try and be purposeful. I haven't told my wife that yet, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, just did. 
Pray for those opportunities. Pray for boldness to share the gospel clearly, courageously, and humbly. Because you are a person who is in desperate need of being healed too. If anyone will give a hearing to this life-saving message of Christ, it will depend on the work of God, the po- God's power. Don't forget that. It's God who saves. Even if Jonah did not go, God ordained that the Ninevites would have been saved, so he would have sent someone or something else. Amen. He would have. The fact here is that Jonah was being disobedient, and God was going to teach Jonah a lesson or two. Actively and, reg- and regularly invite people within your sphere of influence to an amazing church service like Nolwood's. The gospel should be read, preached, sung, prayed, and displayed. We do that through the ordinances of the Lord's table and, and baptism. Bringing an unbeliever to worship with us is, is one possible means of introducing them to the message of Christ. Use a paper invitation, text message, Facebook, social media, whatever. Or, or, go talk to them. But, you know, I understand that I'm a millennial, so. But do not allow these invitations to substitute for the verbally proclaiming of the gospel. We must open our mouths and share. We must speak using our words to explain carefully what the gospel is. We must speak the good news because our Lord Jesus, when he came down from heaven to a place of great evil, this earth, came using words like this, repent and believe in the good news. When he stopped at the well of the Samaritan woman, he said, I am he, meaning the Messiah for whom she was looking for. He told Nicodemus, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He told the crowd in John 8, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world. This Jesus, for the joy set before him, went to the cross, became the propitiation for my sins, became sin for me, bore my sins on his body on the tree, died for my sins according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again three days later. And along the way saved me through the preaching of the gospel. It was only by faithful people coming into my life who were not comfortable in the indifferences, who understood that I was an object of God's wrath. It was only by the preaching, faithful teaching and preaching the gospel that God saved me. It's an amazing thing. It should be a little thing for me to tell someone else about how he can save them too. We see a great God. But don't forget, this story is about a man. A disobedient man. To God's call. And how his disobedience is showing a comfortable indifference in spite of the threat of God's wrath against all rebels. But we've all been told something. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then there's the tack on, Behold, I am with you. We don't do this on our own. It is scary. It is so scary. I grew up in the church. I, I, I get the definition of church comfortability. I, I get it. I understand it. I know it. I struggle with it. 
It's comfortable to sit in a pew and to have your ears tickled, as Spurgeon said. Some people don't call them comfortable, but it's comfortable. They're padded. It's comfortable. But God calls us to go do something. I have to do it. This doesn't count. You have to do it. We need to go proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ because it's good news. Christ died for our sins and he rose again. It's amazing news. The main need everybody has in their life is a need for a savior. Because regardless of if we fill them up with food or not, they're still going to the same place without Jesus Christ. So let us feed them, but also let us proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for who you are. I thank you for the reminder from your word about who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, you are a gracious God. You're a merciful God. You're abounding, overflowing grace and mercy, Lord. And it's shown through the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray that we would be a people, that we would be a community, that we would be a family who are seeking to be disciples, who are making disciples of Jesus Christ. May we stop using excuses. May we repent and may we move forward in your strength. And amen.